keep praying, obviously, these next weeks through that, uh, through that time. So today we're going um, to jump into our anniversary talk, and I want to share with you something. I shared this the first couple of weeks, of, a couple of months anyways, that restoration was up and running. Uh, my wife and I, this is the second time I've lived in Florida, and my, my wife also. She is a, a Florida native, and we have been around. She lived in uh, Birmingham. I lived in New Orleans, and uh, we both made our way back to the state largely because we were married and we had to. That's just the reality of what happened. So we're here now because we're married. But the, the driving impetus for us to come here was to start restoration. And so um, when we had first moved here, we were kind of re-exploring Florida because it had been a while. And we decided to, to just explore a little bit. And so we went on this road trip. Uh, you might remember this Mount Dora story. Um, to, anybody of you ever been to Mount Dora? Anybody in here? Okay. It's like a little gnome village. It's really cute and quaint and uh, uh, kind of a German influence, lots of little antique shops. But we went out there for the day. And that week was, it was kind of, uh, what happened that week is really applicable to what I want to share with you today. Two things really stood out and are kind of etched in my mind about the topic of consistency that we're going to talk about today. The first happened in Mount Dora. We were walking down that main drag, just looking at stores, and uh, this lady, uh, this is no exaggeration, this lady busted, like busted out of a door. Uh, kicked it open, and she looked right at me like she had known me for years. Uh, and with a very disturbed and shocked look at her face, she said, they, and she pointed back to the building she'd come out of, she said, they just threw me out on the street. And I said, well, why did they throw you out on the street? You know, and she said, well, because it was, it was like 2.55 that time. And she said, because they closed at 3, and at 2.55 they said I had to get out. And she pointed and walked away angrily. And I looked up, um, and the, the title of the place was the Christian Care Center. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I found it kind of interesting that, you know, I didn't have any time to shepherd that lady, but she was angry. And uh, anyways, care ends at 3 o'clock, or 2.55 at that place. So it was, it, afterwards we joked about it, but it said something to me. And the second event I actually thought was much more serious. It happened later on that week. Uh, we had gone to Panera. My wife and I was actually still pregnant with my daughter Adelaide at the time. And uh, we were walking out of the restaurant in the parking lot. And we literally almost got run over by one of those utilitarian work trucks. Uh, this was a guy who clearly had no regard for pedestrian crossing. And it, what was most disturbing about this is as we were making our way to the car, you know, uh, in America, pedestrians have the right of way. You're supposed to theoretically stop when you see people in, this, in the, the road or the street uh, or in a parking lot in this case. And as we were crossing, um, this guy actually didn't stop. He sped up. Like I could hear the motor of his vehicle. He accelerated to try to beat us to the vehicles. And so um, I was pretty angry and, you know, grabbed my wife and we kind of let him go by because we can't win against a van. But <clears throat> what was interesting to me about this, I think very ironic too, was on the side of the van, there was, there were very large letters, like bold black print that said, always courteous uh, in our service, <laughs> which, which was interesting. The clear exception there being when you are trying to run over pregnant women, that's probably the one place where courtesy is is put to the back, the back burner. And so in, in both, both of these instances, you have great examples of what can rightfully be described as, as an inconsistency between words and actions. Right? In both cases, there, there is a clear disconnect for whatever reason for what people are saying they are and what they actually are. And if, if we're not careful, what can happen is, if, if you think about the Christian faith, the same thing can take place in our lives. Uh, for some people, following God at, at times can be a series of inconsistencies. It's kind of like we have God, and his character says he's this, and he asks us to be 
you know, fashion in his image and to kind of become like him. And there are seasons in life where, where maybe we're not doing as well in that area as we, as we would prefer. And I'll give you a couple of very obvious am, uh, examples. Like when a person claims uh, to follow God, and you know, the, the theme of Philippians, which we're clearly not in today, um, has been joy and peace and hope. And what happens is we, we claim to follow a God who offers us these things, but yet we can't find any of that in life. There's, there's an inconsistency, if you will, between the word of Jesus and, and the reality of our lives. Or uh, here's another major one. You know, we serve a, G, a Jesus who, who undeniably loves us. We spent a whole month talking about this in the book of Philippians. And what happens is God says, there is no greater love than the one that I show to you. Uh, and when we experience it, sometimes we have uh, an inability and maybe, maybe sometimes we just cannot love others in the same way. There's an inconsistency there, right? Or we, we serve, this is a perfect example this week, a God who is a God of, he's a rescuer. That's what scripture teaches us. He is a God of mercy and grace, a God who cares for those who are oppressed and hurting and in need. This is one of the major themes of the Old Testament is God redeems and rescues those who are unable to redeem and rescue themselves. And so we get comfortable with this truth in our lives. God is a rescuer, a redeemer. He is merciful and cares for us. He comforts us when we hurt, but yet we can maybe at times in life, whether it's a sensational event like what just took place, the hurricane, or something that might seem more mundane to us, but really is just as significant in the life of a person, we can't actually perpetuate that. We can, we can hear about mercy and grace, but we just can't show it to others. The, 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 we're so busy or wrapped up in life circumstances, our own, that caring for the well-being of others is not even an option. These are inconsistencies. And so if this sounds like you, and I guess the thing I want to say here is, if we're going to be honest, to varying degrees, at times in our walk with Christ, this is going to be all of our stories at times. No, nobody gets away from this. We all have seasons of mountaintop and valley where we're trying to follow God faithfully, and maybe it doesn't work out the way we want. And so what I want to do today is I want to kind of normalize this, especially when we talk about consistency in our church, which is where we're going with this when we think about the future. I want to, I want to preface what I'm about to say today, that, that this up and down is normal for, for all of us. And so I want to encourage us in the fact that we're not alone in this struggle, uh, the fact that we're here for each other in it. But at the same time, I tried to challenge us to think about how we can try to bring, in, uh, bring consistency excuse me, to the inconsistency. We want to be comforted in the fact that God is a gracious God, but we don't ever want to let inconsistencies overdevelop in our lives to the place where we actually maybe don't represent the image of Jesus well, whether that is as individuals or a body. So today, as we celebrate, oh, you know, granted a week afterwards, as we celebrate our sixth anniversary, Restoration turns six on October 10th, in case you, you didn't know that, we're going to look at our church family uh, through the lens of consistency. I want to take some time um, to give thanks for where God has had us, but, uh, had us, but also spend some time to talk about what is going to matter for uh, the future. There are three main ideas that really have a substantial shaping factor in our continued health, vibrancy, and growth. So we want to give thanks for what God has done, but take some time to look at what is essential for us to keep moving forward as a church family. In these three areas, we have to have consistency, not perfection. I draw a distinction between those two words all the time. We're not called to be perfect in these areas. It's, it's not possible to be perfect in them. But we are challenged to be consistent in them when it comes to our words and deeds. We don't ever want a metaphorical sign over our church that doesn't uh, communicate the same consistency to the community we live in or to our neighbors. All right? We, when we develop consistency in these areas, we greatly increase our ability to be used by God for many years to come. And that should be the ultimate desire of all of our lives as individuals and as a body. So consistency like this in our lives, specifically when we talk about it in the context of our church body. 
uh, as a church family, it doesn't just happen. It really does require two things. And you might almost connect this idea, this theology, if you will, to what we talked about a few weeks ago in that passage where Paul is talking about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. In order to have consistency in the Christian faith, it requires two things. The first is a deep dependence on the grace of God. You, you, we can't be consistent in the things of God without God. It's just a, it's like a theological uh, inaccuracy. It's inconsistent. We have to have God in our lives. We have to be present in him and him present in us. But we also have to have discipline in some areas. So we have to have the ability, for example, just going back to the, the stories I gave, if, if, if you are that person in the truck who is okay with running pregnant people over, you're never going to stop that attitude unless you can have the guts to say, well, this is a poor driving behavior and it poorly represents my company. And, and I should think about that. It requires a little bit of that, that personal reflection to be able to sort some of this out. And so what I want to talk about today are three essential marks, must-have marks, if you will, I won't even spend a ton of time on them. I just want to introduce them today. There are three marks of a healthy church. They are three places we must be undeniably consistent in if we want to continue to follow Jesus. And I would go so far as to say when they are evidenced in our body, they are evidences of us genuinely following Jesus. If we want to make a difference for Christ and in our world, these things have to be present in our lives. So I want to jump right in and just get to them. And they're under this main heading. There's only one idea I want to talk about today. If we want to continue to follow Jesus, and keep in mind, this is the theme we, we highlight every, every anniversary, we do want to continue to follow Jesus, then we must have a consistency in three critical areas of our church. And these areas are not necessarily um, popular in some senses, but they are clearly the words of Jesus, and that's why I want to talk about them. And so I'll reread what, what was just read to us a few minutes ago by the worship team. John 10, 14 and uh, 27 Jesus gives us this motif, which we've taught on here before, about him being the good shepherd. And he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. This is a talk about followership, how our church follows Jesus. And the title of this talk is, Will You Follow Me? And me is not me. I mean, I guess there's some vicarious reality to that. But it is, can we follow me, meaning Jesus, when he gives us these types of words? This is the, the future of our church is bound up in our consistency in that command. And so in those classic discipleship verses, Jesus says the alpha mark of a person who follows him is when they recognize his voice. And to explain this truth, Jesus goes right, he goes immediately to a, to a metaphor of shepherd and sheep. And the teaching explains the kind of relationship he wants us to have with him. It is a relationship rooted in something deep and meaningful. Uh, listen to the foundation. Here's some of the kind of, uh, you, you almost might consider them the benefits connected to this sheep-shepherd relationship. In John 10, this isn't in our talk today, but I just want to give you the list of them. In John 10, Jesus says his love for us is so rich that he is willing to sacrifice himself for us. He's willing to suffer and die for our sins. He loves us so much that he rises from the dead so that he can restore us to God the Father. He does all this so that he can know us. The root of the shepherd and the sheep is that he wants to know us and he provides a way for us to know him. And the main result of those who experience this relationship with Jesus is that he wants to lead us. And he expects that as we become disciples and grow in that, we will want to follow him wherever he leads us. That's what happens. That's at least the way it should happen. And so remember, whenever we talk about this word discipleship or disciple making, especially when we look at passages like this, these types of passages are like the fundamental definitions. When we talk about disciples today, it's because we have these verses. These are the first disciples. This is who Jesus is speaking to here. And so this is like page number one in the Jesus Discipleship Handbook. And here he describes this relationship as something that is intimate, 
something that is steeped in loving Jesus and listening to Jesus and following Jesus. It is a relationship, we can say it simply but profoundly, it is birthed out of a significant sacrifice that Jesus makes for us, and it causes us to live, at least it should, to live with unrivaled significance in life. So the amazing nature of the sacrifice of Jesus' love for us on the cross now gives us an unrivaled significance and purpose in life. And so for the disciples who choose to follow him, for those disciples who follow him today, and for churches, the definition of a church, one of them anyways, is it's, it's, def, it's a definition of a body of people committed to pursuing Jesus with each other. It is a group of disciples working towards growing an entity that makes disciples. All of this is built on the desire to intimately know and pursue Jesus. And so think about this. This statement here, these disciples, right? They're, they're defined by the fact that they walk with, talk with, and know Jesus. This is what the essence of a disciple is. And I think it's interesting, for good reason we call the Christian faith Christianity, but Christianity, rewind your mind 2,000 years. What we call Christianity today was not called Christianity in the first century world. Uh, Christianity was simply being with Jesus. That's what it is. The, the, we call it Christianity today. It's an organized world religion, right? But Christianity in the origins of it, of it the, the first century world, they didn't know the name. But what they knew was to be Christian was to be with Jesus. It was to know Jesus and to follow him, to be strengthened by his presence and guided by his, word, his words. So you almost have to make sure that in the formality of the faith, which is important, we don't lose the essence of it. The essence of a disciple of a church is to be intimately connected to Jesus and to be displaying that intimacy to the world. The disciples are defined by their relationship to Christ. And it is what defines their relationship and purpose in life with each other and everybody else. And so scripture teaches us the reason so many people often struggle with inconsistency. The reason they struggle or practice what I like to call a dry, lifeless Christianity as opposed to having this deep sense of spiritual vitality that we read about here, or we are reading about here, which, by the way, vitality, spiritual vitality, is one of our guiding values as a church. It's likely because they, they are at a place where they are professing, they, they to some degree, are, they know Jesus, but they fail to embrace the kind of robust lifestyle of a disciple we read about in John 10. They don't know the voice of the shepherd or experience the truth and the grace of the relationship. And so it creates a... A, a form of a relationship, but not necessarily one that is vibrant or effective. Now apply this to the context of the church, our church and all churches. If, if the predominant heart attitude of a church culture is this, then the predominant attitude of a church will be this. So how do we as individuals who, who make up a church family, how do we embrace this lifestyle of consistency? Well, there are four proact or three proactive kind of ideas I want to share with you this morning. The scripture teaches us there are three main areas. They're not the only areas, but I would say, man, there, there's a lot of dangling things that come from each one of these ideas. But nonetheless, these alpha headings, our future is, is married to them. Scripture teaches us there are three main areas we must strive to be consistent in if we want to follow Jesus as a church. And the first area of consistency our church must remain faithful to is being a people who pursue the truth of Jesus in scripture. Uh, this is kind of our foundation. Simply put, uh, and I say this, any time we talk about the importances of the promises, of the teachings, of the truth of the grace of Jesus, we know these things because we have the Scripture. <laughs> In other words, we know what Jesus said because he's left us something to know what he said. Simply put, if we as a church want to continue to do great, and at the end of this talk, I'm, I want to show you that our body has done great things. I have a little bit of a list I'm going to share with you. God has done good and great things through this church already. 
But I do believe the promise of the first century church was that God would do even greater things through his son when he left and the Holy Spirit came upon us. And so God has done great, but he's going to, I believe, do greater things through us. If we want that to happen, we must, we must make sure we never forget our first love, making it a priority to learn with our hearts and minds the truth of who Jesus is in the scripture. You'll never be a great church for God if a church is not made up of great individuals who love God. In this way, the individual relationship we have with Christ deeply affects the, the corporate body. So the, the main way we find and experience truth as a church family is by being a people who consistently look to Jesus in the scripture and then do their best to bring a consistency in their lives in that area. And so if we want our church to be a, a church that truly lives up to its name, Restoration, which has been the hallmark of our church forever, when people come here, they'll say, well, they feel included, involved. Um, we use the word high touch, and what that means is it's a church built on pretty strong relationship. And that probably... That, that connects as many people to our body as it does horrifies them, Some, being honest with you. Some people, when they realize like there's genuine care and concern, they don't want that. They, they kind of want a bit of ambiguity. Uh, and, and over time, I think our body has shown a posture of loving people enough to actually to love you. And I want to say that um, in, in the world of solo spirituality, which we'll get to in a moment, it's important that we don't cede to that. I think if we're going to die on a hill, we should die on this one. We should die on the fact that we want to pursue and love people like Jesus has pursued and loved us. We, we have to have that same aura in, in our church body. And to do this, we have to make it a priority to know the Christ of the Bible. And so in Scripture, there's some important reasons we do this. Uh, when we read Scripture, we learn that Jesus is all truth. And the Bible was given to us so that we could know the truth of what matters most in life. That's the end game of all truth. Jesus says, here's what matters most. And if you, if you marry yourself to these ideas and these truths, you're going to have a meaningful life. That life, that truth, ultimately sets us free and leads us to everlasting hope, peace, and, and joy. And so what happens is, is to know the truth means to be free. That's what Scripture teaches us. And so if we're going to build our church in any image, it should be in the image of Jesus' truth. Because if a church family builds itself on the foundation of anything less than knowing Christ through the Word, your best case scenario is you, you create, an, and I mean best case here, you create an incomplete understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. We represent him in partial ways, incomplete ways. And we begin to reflect an image, if you will, of Christ, but one that is somewhat distorted. Think of like, think of your mirror when you get out of the shower in the morning, which we encourage. We encourage restoration people to shower regularly, right? When you get out of your shower, your mirrors are fogged up. Like, you, you would be crazy. I don't shave much these days. I do this three times a week because I'm too lazy now. But you would be crazy to shave your face or do anything that matters in life in a, in a fuzzy, foggy mirror. You can't see. That's the idea here is you, you, you might display an image of Jesus. Like you can see some of your cheek when you're shaving, but not the part that matters most as you're working a razor on your neck. That's not what we would can encourage a, a good method. The same is true here. When we have an incomplete understanding of Jesus, we will likely represent an incomplete image of him, and we will likely create distorted understandings of him. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is you can actually create a church culture totally disconnected from, from following Jesus, what Jesus actually is. And that, then you have something that claims to follow Jesus, but actually doesn't really in the ways that Jesus says matters most. And there's a great irony in this when it comes to this tension. I bring it up every time we talk about this tension. It is a sad story that we live in an era that has never had such a freedom and access to be in God's word, yet at the same time seems to be placing uh, such a low value on actually reading the Bible. And so all the research today says a great many people They've embraced a Christian posture that says, you know, I, I believe in Jesus or God or some form of spirituality, 
uh, even a Christian spirituality, but they've disconnected themselves from the truth of, of, of Jesus and the Bible. And I guess what I want to say here is I, I want us to be different in this area. I really do. This is also one of our values. I, we, have, we have stuck a flag on the hill saying that our church will live and die on being a church that believes in the truth of the Bible, but communicates it in a way that is honest, gracious, truthful, and, and relevant. In other words, we, we want to recognize that what Jesus says in the Word is not necessarily a universally accepted idea. And so the, the truth of this is we have to be loving and caring in our beliefs, but we have to have them. We, we, can't, we can't forsake them. Because if we don't, what happens is we'll, we'll build a church body that contributes to one of the greatest problems facing the church today. It is a growing problem pointed out in a lot of places. You can no longer read any type of reputable Christian research that says this is not a problem. It is a problem. And I introduced this in the first year of our church um, from a reputable uh, agency called the Barna Group, which does a lot of research in all kinds of issues of faith and politics and all kinds of stuff. I quote them regularly, but this study pointed out in this area one of the sig- most significant challenges facing the modern church. It was like a list of the ten the, the ten like torpedoes that they feel are going to be a problem in the next 10 to 20 years. And they did this not by taking, you know, polls of culture. They went into churches and asked people these questions. They went to the people who say they love Jesus. And the number one issue that surfaced from everybody was this. Uh, the, the Christian church and the people who are part of it, they're becoming less theologically literate. Meaning as they went into churches, they began to talk to Christians who did not know the Bible at all. They were a part of a body or a church, but they weren't necessarily loving Jesus privately or personally. And so what, this is what the, this, the statistics said. I'll read it to you. Uh, what used to be basic, universally known truths about Christianity, this is in the context of the church now, are now unknown mysteries uh, to a large and growing share of Americans, especially young adults. For instance, uh, the Barna Group's studies in 2010 showed that while most people regard Easter as a religious holiday, only a minority of adults associate Easter with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, like, Easter is a thing for the Christian, but it's not like the thing. The thing meaning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we eat all that fried chicken and sweat at the park. It's an honor, it's an honor of Jesus' resurrection. Right? You can eat fried chicken any time of the year. There's only been one resurrection. Other examples include the finding that few adults believe that their faith is meant to be the focal point of their life or to be integrated into every aspect of their existence. So what this says is um, faith, you, if you remember the busyness series I did years ago, faith is a piece of life. Uh, and I use this, I, this analogy of a pie. Uh, we tend to look at God and we sliver him up into pieces. But the truth is that when we talk about pursuing Jesus, Jesus is not meant to be a slice of the pie. He's the shell of the pie. He's what shapes every, everything in the pie itself. But what's happened is a great majority of people don't see their faith like this. They see it as something that they're, it's something, but it's not the thing. So think about this. It doesn't shape how they live or how they, how they talk to people, how they care about people. It doesn't shape the whole life. It shapes something in the life. I don't know what, but not the type of life Jesus calls us to be shaped. It doesn't create a, a proper or, or true reflection of who Jesus is. They go on to say, further, a growing majority believe the Holy Spirit is a symbol of God's presence or power, but not a living entity. This is dangerous. Because when you begin to talk about, um, Jesus says, when I go, I'm paraphrasing, but when I go, my spirit is with you. This is who the Holy Spirit is. The whole kingdom of God right now is bent up and bound up in the fact that God's spirit is working on earth. So if, if God's spirit through Jesus is no longer his spirit, a living, breathing being. This is what scripture teaches us. He's just some, some I don't know even what you call this here. He's, he's a symbol. There is no longer any power associated to the Christian faith. This is why when we talked about life change, and we will as we resume next week, the power of change in life is, is through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
He's not a symbol of what Jesus wants you to be. He is the means to which you can become who Jesus wants you to be. Remove the power of the Spirit, we remove the power of the, of the faith. And here's, I think, where the most interesting challenge is here. This was written five, almost six years ago. As the two younger generations, Generation X, which is my generation, um, Generation X kind of led the, the revolution in church planting. If you look at all your church planters now, pastoring churches, the majority of them are in this generation. So by church planting standards, we're old men now, frankly, because there's a whole generation that's come up underneath us, the millennial culture, that will inherit and perpetuate this work. And so they highlight right now the existing leadership structure in most churches and those that will be leading churches in the next 10 years. And what they say is, based on this fact, if it continues, as the two younger generations, Gen X and millennials, ascend to numerical and positional supremacy in churches across the nation, the data suggests that biblical literacy is likely to decline significantly. The theological free-for-all that is encroaching in Protestant churches nationwide suggests the coming decade will be a time of unparalleled uh, theological diversity and inconsistency. And here we are six years into this quote, and I don't think you have to look far into the current church culture in the world to see that we're beginning to reap some of what we sow here. The church has never been, to say the church was diverse was usually a good thing, but now what's happened is in the world, sometimes diversity is actually, it has nothing to do with Christianity anymore. And so what happens here is there's a keen cultural analysis here that teaches us why there are so many people today who appear to practice potential forms of Christianity that aren't really Christianity. It is very easy and somewhat convenient at times uh, to practice a faith like this. But I want to say this today, that this is not the kind of faith we want to practice here. At the end of our days, it is really my hope that, that people will look at restoration, and while we are still alive and serving Christ, they will look here, and whether they like it or not, not because of our attitude, please hear me, I'm not talking about the way we conduct ourselves, I'm saying they can look at who we are based on who Jesus says we should be, and they can make their own decisions on whether or not they want to be a part of that. But it is my hope that we remain consistent in this area, that people will look at us and say, this is what Jesus said, and this is what they are. Uh, that is a consistency point we can't negotiate on. And so I say all this to say this. While some people, uh, articles like this see this illiteracy issue as a problem for the church to deal with, I actually see it as a pretty good opportunity for us to set a healthy trend in. We know this is a challenge and it's going to be a growing one. So for us, we don't want to say the battle's over. We want to say this is a place that God has marked us out to be different in. And we want to, we want to labor well for him in a way that honors Jesus well by, by sticking to his truth and really trying to help people embrace it and wrestle with it in a loving, caring, non-judgmental way. So as you think about your own life right now and how it connects to the future of restoration, ask yourself right now, are you a learner and a lover of God's truth? Ask yourself if in a consistent way you're in the Word and living out the Word. If you need help in this area, hear me here. This is a body responsibility. So if you need help in this area, we can help you here. There are people who can help you understand what it means to pursue the Jesus of the Bible, what it means to read the Bible well. We actually have some talks I did two months ago on this. You can go back to him and reference. But the point here is the future health of your faith in our church are deeply dependent on this. And know that there's an incredible amount of mutual support amongst our body to help everybody figure this out. And this idea of mutual support leads me to the second area of consistency I want to talk about. So area one is I can't even talk about these other things unless I have number one in order. Because what I'm going to share with you are direct teachings from Jesus. The second area of consistency our church must remain faithful in is to being a people who are committed to each other. So we've got to be committed to Jesus, right? But we've also got to be committed to each other. Um, this is one of our values. It's the fact that we're a church that believes in genuine relationship, authenticity, and community. And what that means is people have to matter. We can never get to a place where 
we see folks as utilities or, you know, we're, we're trying to connect with people to get them to do stuff. All, all of these things have a place in the church. But at the end of the day, it is my genuine hope that people that are in contact with this body, and we get good remarks here, they, they know they're loved and they're cared for in the ways Jesus says they need to be loved and cared for. It can clearly be a bit of a disconnect there. But nonetheless, this, this is something I want to talk about. And so this month, as I was reading, preparing my talks, uh, I, I subscribe to a magazine called Christianity Today and, and definitely want to get on your, uh, your subscription list if you enjoy reading. Uh, this is without question uh, the best magazine today in print that deals with the most critical faith issues of our time. And they highlight a lot of things, including themes that they've seen. Uh, and highlighted again in this, they did this, it was called like the state of the church, how they see the church working in America. Again, they highlighted how the hallmark of our age is, is individual spirituality. Simply put, what they said is the growing trend, even amongst those in the body, is, is to the preferred religion of choice, you might say, is for a great many people to follow Jesus on their own. And this is going to be a direct contradiction to the way Jesus says we need to follow him. Uh, although many Christians in the modern Western church have embraced this kind of Christianity, I want to say that for us uh, today to continue to be a vibrant, healthy, Jesus-honoring church, church we, we cannot. We have to make a space for people here, but we also have to say our, our forward direction has to be the continuation of cultivating community. Because a, a true follower of Jesus, it's very important to know this, is a person who doesn't just know truth, that creates its own problem, but they have to live truth out in relationship with other people. So while popular in culture, nowhere in Jesus' teachings will you find an endorsement for this type of individual religion. And this is in large part because, I've shared this before, God himself has always been in community with his Son and his Spirit. And in a similar way, calls us to have the same types of loving, caring relationships with each other. And this is clearly evidenced in who Jesus is and what he does. So think about this. Every teaching that the disciples get, including the one I just read to you, Jesus, does, he doesn't come in like in his, I don't know, his first century mule version of a limousine. He doesn't come in on his high horse and tell them to do something, and then he checks out a life and sees them in five months. That is not the nature of the truth of Jesus. The truth of Jesus is he communicates to them truth. He says, this is who I am and who you need to be. And then he spends his time with them helping them become that. They bear each other's burdens. They work out their salvation, their pursuit of him, with fear and trembling with each other. He doesn't just give them truth, which is what you get if you just read the Bible and do nothing else. He also gives them himself to be a part of his truth. And so what we learn here is the, the hallmark of the Christian faith, genuine Christianity, is that we know the voice of the Savior and live this amongst each other. In other words, Christianity is a team-based sport. It is more like a game of baseball where players rely on each other to progress. You don't win a game without a third baseman if you're the best first baseman in the world. All your batters are going to hit the ball down the third base line, and they're going to score runs all day long. You can't, you can't win the game like that, nor can you progress in Christianity like this. It's, it's not like a game of golf. This is another reason I don't like golf. It's more like a game of baseball. And by baseball, it means there's a collegiality necessary to grow. And the reason this truth is meant to be lived out, think about this amongst the church family. If our church is going to continue to be like Jesus, our church, the very nature, the plurality of those terms, means we have to do this together. It's because in Scripture, all the things God tells us, you will never find a command or a truth or anything that Jesus gives us or God gives us in the Old Testament that is disconnected from relationships. There are none. The greatest commandments of the kingdom are to learn how to love God more deeply in our neighbor. 
There is no abstract truth or morality in Scripture disconnected from the way God says it is best for us to live amongst each other as people. So to then take what Jesus says and disconnect it from people becomes arguably one of the most problematic issues in the Christian faith. So for example, let's just say you're a person um, who struggles with being selfish. Unhealthy rhythm of a life and a disciple. We all have our struggles. So if yours is not selfishness, just take this word out and put your word in there, right? Anger. I told you guys mine is anger weeks ago. Whatever the unhealthy rhythm of a disciple is, let's talk about selfishness. God begins to show you this through the study of the word. And what's very easy, it's very easy for this to happen. If you're alone on a spiritual island, you read this then disconnected from people uh, or from the context of a church family. It becomes very easy to disconnect the fact of, of your selfishness from other, from other people. That epiphany then gets watered down in such a way that you don't have to deal with it. You don't have to address your selfishness because you're not even in contact with people enough to deal with it. In fact, that might even be an evidence of selfishness. However, if you're in a church body, um, or in a particular community group, if you look at community in our church, with each level, community gets more significant. I'm not saying there isn't great community here, but it's different than the community groups. This is, but this is, I'll tell you, just from looking at what happened over the, over the course of the hurricane, uh, all of the requests and all of the needs that I'm aware of that were met were done through local community groups. Groups were helping each other and then reaching out to other people. So you can see there's different levels of concentric commitment, if you will, as you get more involved in the nature of community. And that's because there's a mutual accountability here. You, you start you know, spurring each other on in these areas. What happens is when you're in an environment where you're regularly being challenged to be like Jesus, in this case to give yourself to others on a regular basis, because that's what a family does, you start to change. Living in Christian isolation deepens the root of selfishness, while living in the relationship uh, with other people is likely going to cause the, the selfishness weed to be pulled. You can't treat somebody like that and then not bring it up. And most likely what happens is in a healthy culture like ours, um, whatever the issue is, it's not met with judgment. It's actually met with support. So people genuinely want to, they want to help each other in these areas. It's what I love most about our church. Um, and we've dealt with some really substantial issues in our church. People have challenges and issues, and we don't talk about them from the front of the room, but they're in groups of people who want to help them through the challenges and the issues. I love that. It's one, of my, it's one of the greatest things I think our church does because we care about people. Let me give you another example. Let's say you struggle with being patient with other people. So you, you choose the road of isolation. You, you cede reality to what Christianity today is saying. You just go it alone. You're never going to address it. You just won't. You, you're not around people to address it. You don't have the spiritual support system to deal with it. And frankly, when it comes to, um, to patience or these types of uh, really, I would almost call them dysfunctional relational rhythms, what happens is you, you can probably begin to orchestrate your circumstances in such a way to where you don't let people into your life because you know you will, might, you will likely be, you might be challenged. Or somebody might say, hey, man, I've been noticing this. What's going on, man? You okay? You know, you, you, you set your life up in a way to keep people out. However, if you're a vibrant part of a church family, then it's just about guaranteed that you'll be forced to grow in patience because uh, you, you will deal with it on all, all accounts. You will get frustrated at times when someone in a community group or a leader or an elder or a pastor or a congregant, they, they, you get frustrated with them. Something happens in the same way. Think about growing up. Your brothers and your sisters, your parents, you love them to death, but there are times when you just had a hard time with them. That can happen. But at the end of the day, you are closer with those families be, as a family because you've worked through those issues you you are dealing with these things but also having other people deal with you in these areas 
Having to work through these things, selfishness or frustration, what we're talking about now, is what helps a family and each member of it to grow into a deeper maturity. That's exactly why Jesus places so much emphasis on living out his truth with each other. As Christians, the simple truth here is this. When it comes to this statement, we've got to be in this together. If you take one idea away from this, it's this. As Christians, the simple truth here is we are better together. It has always been that way and will always be that way. I want to say that again. As Christians, the simple truth here is we are better together. It has always been that way and will always be that way. And that's why it is worth working through anything that has to be worked through as a church body, whether it's on the individual or the corporate level. We've been designed to do this together. Eugene Peterson, he's a well-known pastor and author. Any of you that read the message as kind of supplemental Bible reading, this is the guy that made that translation or worked on it. He said this when talking about the idea of community. He said, and I think he perfectly captured the idea, he said, there can be no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an embrace of community. He did not say there can be no Christian life apart from it. You can certainly have a form of Christianity living like this. But what he's saying here is, uh, and this is, I think, a, a, a derivative from Jesus' primary teachings. That's the nature of the disciples in community with each other. There can be no wholeness. There can be an incomplete faith. But there can be no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an embrace of community. So as you think about your life and our church's future, when I think about ways we want to grow, this is one of them. And this is sort of an intangible one. Like, when I share with you what our church has done here in a few minutes, I, I can't say, well, like, 87 people felt crazy loved in here. I can't do that. You can figure that out on the local level, but this is something that we cannot necessarily plot on a spreadsheet, but it's present in our body. And I just want to challenge you guys to keep growing in this area because it's a good area to put a flag in the hill on. So as, as you think about this, ask yourself right now, if you're following Jesus alone, when you look to the left and right of this room and in any other environment you're in, do you know people? Um, are you connected with people? Because if you're not, you're missing out on one of the greatest joys in your own life and one of the most important prerequisites required for us to move forward as a church family. We've been designed to be here for each other and to do this together. So I don't want any of us to miss out on that because we might miss out on what God wants for our future. I don't think he can move us forward without that. So we pursue Jesus in truth. We pursue Jesus with each other. And, uh, and that's, that's almost a talk about the internal relationships we have. But this last area of consistency our church must remain faithful to is being a people um, who are committed to helping others find Jesus. And so keep this in mind. Um, the reason, if we, if we follow truth, the reason we know the second idea here is important, that we have to love, for each, love each other, um, we know that because Jesus said that. But we also know the reason this third truth is very important is because we wouldn't have a second truth if people didn't take this one seriously. We don't have Christians who love each other if there are not people who love Jesus helping other people know Jesus. We're here because of this. And so this should go without saying, but nonetheless needs to be said. One of the greatest evidences that a person is, is learning God's truth in a church family is when what they learn, head, heart, and hands, begins to have an effect in their lives when they leave these environments. Uh, when you leave this place, the true test of your faith is how you love Jesus outside of this place. Um, what should happen is we should grow in our love for Jesus so much that that can no longer be hidden. You have some great parables that Jesus gives us, these great uh, examples of Scripture where he says, listen, like a, your light should be like, it should be like a city. It should be, it should be, it, it should be like, a, it, it has to be visible. Or your light, your, who you are in Jesus, should be like a city on the side of a mountain. What he's saying is, is uh, the evidence of Jesus in us 
We never encourage creepy or disproportionate Christianity here. I'm not saying be the weird neighbor. Please don't do that. But I am saying your love and grace for Jesus should be, should be visible to people in ways that they don't want to run away from you. And if you love Jesus a lot and people run away from you, then talk to us about that too and we'll help you get that figured out. That's not good mission. But the point here is Jesus says it should be known that you know him. And so when, when you, that happens, we become an integral part in helping others experience Jesus through our words and deeds. We have consistency. And here's why making this connection is so important. Jesus comes to the earth as our shepherd. He wants us to experience his love so we can become sons and daughters of God. And so those who are already in Jesus are largely in Jesus because somebody was consistent in this area. You are in Jesus right now because somebody saw it as a priority to talk to you. And I'm telling you there are people in your lives right now, presently, that if you will make this a, a, a goal, if you will be consistent in this area, it is very likely you will see them in Jesus too. The bridge right now between the work of God and that person is your life. That's why this matters. And that, that is true in our church. The bridge between our future and God's work, the world, is our church. He would not have put them on earth if it wasn't his plan. So if we as a church family want to continue to be used by God, we've got to be committed to helping others know Jesus. And the simple fact is the mission of Jesus and the people of the local church cannot be separated. It happens all kinds of ways. I've shared it before. The biggest neuter of mission is we often say, well, you know, mission is just over there, another part of the world. And we're actually, uh, we actually, for the first time in a long time, have some, some significant mission partnerships we're going to begin examining. We're not against mission over there. We're just saying is if, if we come in here and we say, the way you love Jesus is when you get on a plane and go see somebody else in another part of the world, which is incredibly valuable. What, that, what happens is, is you, you forget that you actually walk right out of this building and love people. They're right out here in your neighborhood. This is an incredibly dangerous way to live as a Christian or a church family because it's rooted in a bad theology of mission. And what it does is it demobilizes the greatest strength any church has. Uh, it's not your church leadership, although that matters. I mean, don't get me wrong. The, the office of pastor and elder, elders and deacons and deaconess is something we're going to be looking at next year, uh, especially the deacon body. Uh, these are super important roles. But, but the most important role of the church, the, most, the, the power of the church is in you. It's in the lay people. This is the bread and butter of our church. The movement of God always happens through God's people. It might be led, and we're involved in it as leaders, but the, the uncontainable, uncontrollable movement of God is always through God's people. So what happens here is you, you often see churches getting stuck here. They get the first two as they mature. They get the truth. They get the fact that they have to have the Bible. And they get the fact that they have to love each other. But they get hung up on this third one. They forget that those two things should equate to robust love for neighbor and people that don't love God. And it's for good reason that we love the first two. But we can't forget about the last one. Over time, we begin to subtly and oftentimes benevolently devalue the fact that we are called to apply the same level of love and care to those who are in our lives without Jesus. And so while we always, always have room to grow in this area, this is the number one thing I want our church to grow in. It's what I'm praying for. When I think about 2016, 17, my hope is that our voice for mission is no longer deniable. It is so robust and strong that this is the place God would unleash his fire on us over this next year. I say this saying this is the number one priority I have for the next year. But I also don't say this saying like, because nothing's happening right now. I want us to, to think about the future, but give thanks for what God has already done through all of you. And so right now I want to share with you, this is a handful of some of the incredible evidences that restoration, that shows restoration has placed a real value on consistency and mission. It can be very easy to come here for 70 minutes a week and then go home and forget what happens during the other six and a half days of the week. But I'm going to share some of that with you now. 
this is just some of the major stuff God has done through us over the years. So, starting from inception, meaning our, 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 our church body in 2010, since the inception of Restoration, 41 people have come to faith in Jesus here. Okay? 41 have come to know Jesus. Part of the reason for their, their knowing Christ right now is us. And I say that not to brag on us, but to say God's hand is evident here. 51 have been baptized. We find a very common story that we meet people that have known Jesus for a long time and they become a part of our church and they've just not been baptized. They just, it was never encouraged or maybe it was encouraged in an unhealthy way. 51 people who were in Jesus, some new here, some who came to us already in Jesus, were baptized. They took that next step of commitment with him. And 22 children, we see this grow every year and we'll see it next week, 22 children have been dedicated to Jesus by their parents here. So that means 22 people have said they want to try to figure out what it means to raise their kids in Christ. That's awesome. That is generational discipleship. From the point of salvation to popping out kids, which has been a theme in Restoration this year, and helping them know Jesus. By the way, we have serious kids ministry needs right now. I'm just letting you know that thing has grown by infants. We have like five needs over there. So keep this in mind. We'd love for you to step up there so that parents can continue to be supported in that initiative. We've had uh, 22 children dedicated. Since the inception of Gospel Partnership, this is from 2013 when we began partnership, 49 partners have committed their life to serving Jesus here. So 49, not all of them are still here. One of the challenges of Volusia is, um, I actually have a list on my computer, it's called Vocational Loss. And these are people who would have died, I, we would have married them and buried their kids had they not had to move to another place to, for, for a job. It's one of the realities of the transient nature of our church, but since 2013, uh, of our county. But since 2013, 49 people have said, I think... In the old world, I think membership or partnership in the church matters. And they figured out a deeper level of commitment to the church body. Since 2014, this isn't even two full years, we have invested almost $21,000 into helping people receive counseling in adopting children and assisting benevolence needs. That's in less than two years. Next year, we'll have the full complement of numbers from 2010. But you, you say, why do I share this with you? Because people matter to us. And I want you to know when we say tithe and give... Um, I joke, but it's not for my helicopter. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are needs we have to pay for. We have rent and insurances. But the truth here is that a lot of our tithing goes to caring for the needs of people in this place and outside of it. That's a pretty astounding figure for a church our size, who by all the records say we're a big, small church. That's actually what we're considered in the church, the church math right now. A big, small church that is investing this much money back into the lives of people who want to care about people. People matter here. When it comes to serving Jesus inside these walls and outside of these walls, our people, okay, this is since 2014, our people have given away just shy of 20,000 hours of their lives, spread throughout serving the body here and multiple partnerships we have in our communities. That is two and a half years. Restoration's church, our church, has served two and a half years in less than two years in our community and, and serving God's people here. That's amazing. And that does not include the first years of our body, which we're trying to figure out ways to calculate that. And lastly, I'll share that we've invested right around, probably perhaps a little over $5,000 in church planning. And that is to support coaching initiatives. You know that we, we helped get a church running in, in Wisconsin, which we went and visited last February, a sister church of ours. We have friends in Wisconsin. It's pretty amazing because of our partnerships denominationally network. We helped get an X-29E free church up in Wisconsin. Um, and I fished in Wisconsin for the, in Milwaukee, Michigan, all those areas for the first time. Not because I just wanted to fish. My son loves it. But because we have robust kingdom partnerships there. Perk. It's a perk. Fishing, right? 
So keep in mind, this is just the stuff we can calculate. I say this every year. You do all kinds of stuff we don't even have in a spreadsheet. I can't tally the times you have helped a person in need. I can't tally the times you have helped somebody through a crisis in this room. I can't. So you can get, it's guaranteed. I, I can't tally the times you, you serve the body here with your own time and you tie to keep it going, but you do the same things in your world. You're giving away your time, your talent, your treasure. We can't calculate that. But it's fair to say that we can add to every one of these categories if we were able to know what you do just because you love Jesus. So for this day, I just want to remind us that, I want to remind us of how much of an impact we've had because we have had an impact. And my prayer is we'll continue to have this. We want to every year see this grow. We want new stories in all these areas. Okay? And the single most area that I want to see us grow in is in, it's really in these three areas. But perhaps the driving impetus is in how we love our neighbor outside of this place, having more formalized connections and partnerships, both corporately and individually. So there's one last thing I want to say here, and here's how we'll wrap up. Over the last year, um, we've worked very hard to identify and raise up a new crop of leaders who have joined the Restoration Leadership Team to help keep us moving forward. This is the culmination. What you're about to see here is probably the culmination of about 10 months of work and four really long months over the summer. And so uh, Adam, Abby, Simon, Nelly, if you guys would come down. This is part of our new leadership team at Restoration, and we'll have some, uh, some more folks we'll introduce here over these next months. But I want to take a moment to share with you that when we talk about what is going on in the life of our church, um, the website will be updated here shortly with new faces and images. But these are people who have, they've committed not just to serve, but they're overseeing um, very critical areas of the life of our body. And so I want to take a minute for you to see their faces. I want to take a quick minute to let you know what they're doing so you can support them and know how they're here for you. And I also want to, con I want to remind you that in every one of these areas, they're managing teams of people who are, who are conducting the daily affairs of our church inside and outside this room. And that means all of you. You might hear a name up here or a team that you say, you know what, I'd like to be a part of that. And I would encourage you uh, to consider that because our church moves forward um, because of you. Without you, we don't go anywhere. All right. So first, I just stepped on a water bottle. First, we have uh, Abby Alam, who is now officially overseeing um, all of our infrastructure, uh, administration stuff. As you know, we, um, we, we prayed over, uh, or we, we had uh, Lars Haglund. The Haglunds were here for residency for years. And as Lars continues his kind of education at RTS, um, as, he, as his, he stepped out, this is the vacuum that was filled. This is a credibility to how much work he was doing. But it also begins to show new faces who have taken some of those things. So Abby, I like to say, uh, I told this to my wife, she keeps me sane. She loves administration. And I do it out of the fidelity of the kingdom. But, but it's awesome um, that she does it because she does it so much better than me. So uh, Abby oversees anything that happens here, all the invisible nuts and bolts. Abby manages this on a, on a week in, week out basis. All the information that comes in, she processes this stuff. She's returning calls, managing pages. It's amazing how much work she does. Uh, and so we want to be thankful for Abby. And certainly, if you have a knack for administration, uh, you know, this is the person to see. Do not ever talk to me again about it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Simon Lewis, by, by no secret, over the past month, you've probably noticed more of a proactive role in worship leadership here. And so Simon, uh, officially, uh, we sealed the deal over burritos at Tijuana Flats. He's committed to a disciple-making pathway, a continuing education pathway for worship leadership. He is moving into our worship leadership position, and as you've noticed, has been leading worship here uh, for months. So each one of these folks is continually, uh, they, they've developed a desire to serve and to lead. And Simon is now um, overseeing the vast majority of what takes place in worship. Managing the team, organizing practices, uh, selecting music. Now, granted, the team does a lot of pretty amazing things. There are other folks that are not up here. This is true of every person. But right now, he's you got the pointy end of the spear, uh, working with a wonderful team of people. So, uh, Simon. All right. 
Adam Smith, who is representing the Vikings today, uh, <clears throat> literally, figuratively. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't want to fight you, that's for sure. Uh, <clears throat> Adam uh, is officially overseeing what we're calling now operations. The name might change, but the simple fact is, I, I know if you've been with us for a while, um, you know this, but if you're new to us, you need to know this, how much time, energy, and effort it takes to make 75 minutes of this happen. There are so many partnerships with the theater setting up and breaking down. There is a lot that goes on with the setup and the management of organizing simple things, lighting and air conditioning uh, every Sunday it is now Adam who takes care of this for us. He works with management in the theater to make sure we have what we need here as well as he gets up very early and manages a setup team. Same thing, a team of people working with him. But nonetheless, you know, we benefit greatly from this, this that we have right now because of your efforts and, the, and the, the efforts of your team. So we certainly want to remember Adam here, all right? And then we have Nellie, who has been part of our early core. She is one of the people, we didn't show the picture today, but she was in our living room when there were just 16 people connected to Restoration Church. So you are, I think this is like the absolute mark of commitment. You haven't left yet, and that's awesome. So uh, Nellie just recently overtook hospitality and connections. And so a lot of what goes on in the foyer, your hot coffee, smiling faces, Nellie now manages this this team. She oversees essentially what we feel is one of the most important things we can do here, and that is to create a warm, welcoming environment for those of you that are already a part of the body, but for those that you, of you that come in here or that you invite here. Your, the, the care that you experience in the foyer is largely overseen by Nellie and her team, and so we certainly want to thank them for all that they do. Now, uh, just a second here, I want to pray for them. And, uh, and then I'll close. I have literally one minute, more, one minute more of stuff to say. But over these next months, too, we're going to continually let you know as we, as we rebuild our leadership teams, there are a few faces here. Uh, I, this has been discussed. Uh, Lee Murray is an elder in training. He's about to go through a formal elder residency uh, with us, like a process. There's new leadership cropping up all over the place, as well as we still have needs in a handful of teams. So it is our goal that by the, by the, the new year, the, the finality of who is leading restoration is in concrete stone, and we're three-quarters of the way there right now. So um, thank you guys for your prayer and your efforts. Certainly support them in their work. And right now we just want to thank you guys and pray for all of you um, for this. So, Father in heaven, we just come to you now, and I thank you for Nelly, for Adam. I thank you for Simon, and I thank you for Abby. And I thank you, Father, for from who, who they are in you. There's so many things that go into identifying who does what here, but the foundation of all this is a genuine and devout love for your son. Uh, and so I am so thankful, first and foremost, God, not just for what, for what these folks do and the, the people in our church that serve you. I'm thankful, first and foremost, for their love for you. Out of that love is the overflow that service comes from. And so we thank you for their heart in you, and we thank you surely uh, for the, the, the sweat and the energy they put into helping our church run. We pray for them individually, for their families, and for their friends. We pray, God, that you would raise up men and women in this room to support them in their work. I pray that their days would be easy because of the volume of people wanting to help them accomplish these things, that they would lead well, but that you would raise up a, a team, uh, folks to serve their teams. Every one of these teams has need right now, and we pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts and the minds of people to bring that, uh, that need to fruition. But we do pray for a, a special blessing on their lives and a protection and a continued grace um, from your son, Jesus. We thank you for what they do for you and for the evidence of your son in them and for what they do for us as a church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Last thing I'm going to say here. <clears throat> so this talk's over now. And as we wrap up this anniversary Sunday, 
and you think about the, the three marks of a church following Jesus that we've spoken about today, I want to call your attention to Luke 9.23, where Jesus says uh, his followers are servants that, that take up their cross and follow him. That's the idea of what it means to be a person who follows Jesus. It is the idea of what it means to be a body that follows Jesus. The same is true absolutely for restoration. Our, our job as, a, as believers is to follow Jesus where he leads us. We're, we're to do this in his word with each other and in our community, in this community and in our community. And it is my prayer that as we think about the next year and give thanks for, for six great years of ministry here, they've not been easy, but they've been good, that God would continue and in some senses unleash an undeniable movement of his gospel at restoration through us. So today, give thanks for what God has done. Use response time for this, but don't settle for that. I am asking you genuinely to pray and labor with me for a new future. As we close, ask yourself, when you think about where we are, where you are and where we're going, what is Jesus saying to you about your involvement in this? And what are you going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, for the graces of this day. Thank you that on, on a, a week after a catastrophic storm, what, what a difference a week makes, God, where many of us were evacuated and figuring out what to do with our lives. We gather here today relatively safe and sound, giving thanks again for your goodness here at our church. And so this morning, it is my prayer that we would just genuinely think about who we are in you, and we would use this time in response to take our next steps with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.